Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into all the subjects you're talking about in football. I'm Ian McGarvey and with me is transfer guru Duncan Castles. Lots of news to get through with you in this pod today. We're going to start in Milan, um, where Christian Eriksen's move out of uh, the Italian city is getting closer. It's our understanding, however, that while he has been linked heavily for a return to Tottenham Hotspur, in fact, he has been offered to Manchester United. Now, this would be a loan deal until the end of the season with no option to buy as far as it goes at the moment. Uh, The deal is far from being done, uh, mostly because Manchester United have not offered to pay a sufficient part of his wages, which are €8 million net per year, meaning €4 million obviously, for the end of this season. It's our understanding United have offered around €1.5 million uh, with Inter paying the rest. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is quite keen on the idea. Uh, He's looking for a creative central midfielder to assist in United's challenge for the Premier League title. And Duncan... Um, would this make sense to you, given United's current setup? I mean, Paul Pogba has been kind of aching to play in that creative role, but at the moment, Solskjaer seems keen on playing in a four-two-three-one with Pogba wide. Uh, it seems to me I'm, I'm not sure where Eriksen fits in that system. Uh, yes, I think that's a fair analysis to make. You've got Bruno Fernandes, outstanding player for Manchester United since he arrived at the club. The team is now structured around him. Um, Solskjaer is using him essentially as a free-ranging number 10. Uh, as in his own words, encouraging him to take on the most difficult of passes um, because he he sees his ability to open up teams with the, 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 the vision he has for hitting balls that other players don't have. And you can use him there and get a lot of running from him around the pitch. So Fernandes involves himself in, in, in various positions and is defensively active as well. And, and it's clearly been a successful setup for the player and a successful setup for Manchester United. They have Pogba contributing in positions that are not his preferred p- position. Um, I think because he has something to prove. Um, and he's he's trying to set himself up for that transfer away in the summer that uh, his agent, Mino Raiola, um, has talked publicly about him wanting and, and that he will refuse to uh, sign a new contract, even if one is offered to him. They have Donny van de Beek, who, who also his preferred position is at number 10 and is struggling to get into the team at all at present because Solskjaer's preferred um Partners to Fernandez and Pogba in the midfield are Fred and Scott McTominay, particularly for the more challenging games when he wants to be um, defensively more sound. And we've seen him operate that 
uh, lineup and that system on multiple occasions against the bigger teams this season. Not with a huge amount of success, it has to be said, in that their, their results against big six and in games such as Leipzig, where they only needed a draw um, to qualify for the the next round of the Champions League uh, resulted either in um, a failure to score goals or um, exit in, in the Leipzig case. I think what you're seeing here is Ericsson being available on the market. Um, Inter made it absolutely clear that they're ready to let the player go. Um, therefore, you have a, a player of proven Premier League quality who was one of the best players for Tottenham for a good chunk of his time at that club, available. Um, we know that Inter and other clubs know that Inter have financial concerns, as most clubs in, in Europe do. They've stated the position that they would let Ericsson go in this market. That offer that you're talking about in those discussions from Manchester United is one that would be laughed out of court in a normal window, in normal circumstances. You want us to give us... Um, a player who's been a top performer in the Premier League and get us to pay his the majority of his salary, um, it would be a straight blank no. But um, why not chance your arm? Uh, knowing that Inter want to offload him, knowing that he wants to play football um, and knowing, I think, that there isn't really looking like an option for Inter to sell him in this window. Therefore... Maybe, maybe you can get a player of Ericsson's quality in to add to your squad at what would be if they if Inter were to accept that offer, very cheap wages and and just a little bit of extra insurance for the second half of the season. I'd be surprised, Duncan, given Ericsson's record in English football, if there weren't more than one sitter. Um, it is our information that Tottenham have have effectively not responded to any um, overtures with regards to ex taking him back to uh, Naming Rights Stadium. Um, what Ericsson brings, though, is, I mean, goals and assists, yes, but delivery of the ball is something Ericsson is very, very good at. And at United right now, Fernandez is probably the only one who is being effective with regards to set pieces in particular, free kicks. But Ericsson's delivery is very, very good. And that's maybe something that Solskjaer sees in him that he thinks he can take advantage of. As I say, I think this is opportunistic. Um, they've been offered the player, not a surprise, given that there are a limited number of clubs who are capable of taking Ericsson on from a financial perspective. And a limited number of clubs also, I think, that Ericsson would be prepared to move to, um, you know, he, unless he's going, going to take a significant step down after having forced his way out of Tottenham a year ago, then there are only certain clubs that his agent can present him to. Um, I, every impression is that Solskjaer is happy with there's the, the the quality of his midfield at the moment, as he should be, given that he has six international class centre midfielders to choose from. Um, if you can get him at a cheap price, that doesn't mean he goes straight in the team, but he gives you a, an alternative option. And particularly should one of those top players get injured, 
Um, obviously, you can you can push Donny van de Beek into that position, or you can push Pogba into that position, where Bruno Fernandes, who's put a lot of miles into his legs, and who we see Solskjaer taking off at the end of games to try and uh, conserve him from a fitness perspective, and we see Bruno Fernandes not being happy about being taken off in those situations. So, where Fernandes to get injured, Eriksson could be an alternative solution in there if he's not going to go straight to Donny van de Veek or if he's not going to go or doesn't trust Paul Pogba um, in all of those games going forward. You know, realistically, looking at it, where Bruno Fernandes get injured or suspended for a long spell, that would make a fundamental difference to the way Manchester United are playing. So, you know, if the player's offered to you, if you know Inter are prepared to let him go, make a cheeky offer and see what happens. There's only, what, 12 days left now and um, Inter have to find a solution or they're stuck with a player who Conte does not want to be there for the remainder of the season and who Inter have publicly said they're prepared to let go. Cheeky offers, I think, Duncan, are the name of this particular transfer window game uh, with regards to deals being done or not. Um, speaking of which, the position of Deli Ali at Tottenham Hotspur is one where there's a lot of noise around, uh, obviously as someone who um, made a massive impression after his move to Spurs, at both at the club, but also in his England career as well. But yet, uh, in this season so far under Jose Mourinho, has failed to make any impact whatsoever. Lots of talk about a potential move to uh, re-link uh, uh, up with his former coach, Maurizio Pochettino at PSG. But you have news with regards to um, exactly what the position is with Delhi and any potential move out of London. Well, Mourinho was prepared to let Delhi Ali go in the summer. Um, he... I think it's well known that he doesn't rate Deli Ali's attitude, and um, particularly in training, um, it, you know that was quite well publicised. We've seen the the Amazon documentary and where he he talks about Deli Ali, and we see Deli Ali's response to um, those um, statements about his his training. Um, the move was not done in the summer. He has been effectively sidelined by Mourinho. Um, for the majority of the season. Deli Ali obviously wants to be playing football and is pressuring um, internally to play football. Um, you have, at least if it's not postponed, the European Championship coming up in the summer where Deli Ali wants to be playing for England. So he needs a club to play for in the, the period going forward. Paris Saint-Germain is an obvious link because of that relationship uh, and the success he had with Maurizio Pochettino. Um, I was asking today whether Mourinho would be prepared to let him go there. response I received was, there are no offers. Um, how can he go to a club which hasn't made an offer for the player? Um, so that question over whether Daniel Levy is prepared to let Dele Alli go on loan or and or to be sold to PSG. And I think that is the less likely option here because you've got a similar scenario to the Ericsson one um, where 
stronger clubs can take advantage of the financial situation and Tottenham's willingness or the Tottenham's manager's willingness to offload the player. So a loan with an option to buy at best would seem to be uh, the more likely offer if anyone is to come in uh, for Delhi. Um, but there is nothing yet, so that decision cannot be made. Um, and I mean, you can see a scenario in which it, it quite suits Delhi Ali for this suggestion of him moving to PSG um, to come out because he wants to play in the team. And perhaps that story that PSG are ready to sign him helps get him some more playing time for Tottenham, uh, puts his name back into the, the headlines at a time in which Tottenham have struggled. I think it's what, two wins in seven Premier League matches um, for Tottenham now, although they've done well in the Cups, they are below expectation in the league for some time now and um, and it could help Delhi to get some game time for Tottenham. If he does well for Tottenham, then he's, he has a chance to stay in the team. The demise of Delhi's career, Duncan, has almost been as dramatic as his, as his rise to stardom. Only two years ago, um, he was being talked about as one of the most valuable players in world football. Um, Real Madrid were widely talked about in terms of courting him uh, to take him to the Santiago Bernabeu. And yet, he just seems to have almost fallen off the end of the the edge of the cliff in terms of his form, his attitude, and obviously his playing time. Um, is PSG the right place for him to get his mojo back and show that he still is a player of that very high quality? Well, one of the factors in this PSG move is that he wasn't performing particularly well for Pochettino. Um, in Pochettino's final period at the club. So I think you have to factor that into this equation. You also have to factor in that PSG have pretty ambitious plans in terms of signing creative players for the summer. Um, once again, their technical director, Leonardo, went on record this week talking about the club's interest in um, and attempts to secure Lionel Messi in the summer, um, which is not going to be a cheap deal. Of course, um, this is a player who, as we uh, we broke on the transfer podcast in the summer window, was offered 700 million euros over five years to move to the City Football Group, Manchester City, to begin with, um, New York City subsequently. Um, so there is, I think, a question to what extent Pochettino um, will push to get Delhi at PSG. What's gone wrong for him? Well, the big problem he has is that the manager at Tottenham doesn't want to play him. Now, we know that Mourinho is a manager who will push players to the side if he feels they're not performing adequately for the team. Um, that has been one of his methods of kind of, he, he talks about squeezing his players, but it's been one of the methods he's used throughout his managerial career. Um, we have an interesting example at the moment in Tongi and Dumbelli, who went through that process and who has now made himself pivotal to the Tottenham team um, in a position that Deli Ali has played before. Um, by, as Mourinho um, talks about it, forcing his way back through the door 
that Mourinho always leaves open to players if they can demonstrate that they are ready to contribute to the team uh, and, and have the focus to contribute to the team. You also have to note that when Mourinho came into Tottenham, Deli Alley was central to his plans. Um, and we, we, we spent the first few weeks of that period talking about how Mourinho had, in inverted commas, reinvigorated Deli Alley. Um, the quality of Deli Alley's performances, how he, he'd made himself central to Tottenham again. It didn't last. Um, therefore, you know, you can try and you can attribute blame to either side you like, you know, contribute blame to both sides. And, and probably in these circumstances, there is elements of blame to both sides because of the, the way the personalities are. And, you know, Mourinho has talked about Deli Alley's personality and attitude being an issue. I've just talked about how Mourinho will cast players aside if they, they don't perform. So you can see that working both ways. But what is clear is Delhi had the opportunity to re-establish himself at Tottenham and he lost that opportunity. So you ask the question about what's going wrong in his career and, and I think part of it has to come down to Delhi Ali himself. It's not as though he lost his place under Pochettino, Mourinho comes in and Mourinho doesn't use him and casts him aside from the start. Um, he gave him the chance and Delhi's performances at, in games and the way he worked around the training ground resulted in him losing that. And, and from Mourinho's perspective, being surplus to requirements um, from the summer onwards. Feels a bit Duncan, like he's done a mini, mini Mesut, mini Mesut Ozil. Um, lost faith uh, with the club and also the manager and his form. Uh, although I'm not expecting to see Delhi turn up in Istanbul anytime soon, signing for Fenerbahce. You have news for us on uh, another um, player linked with Tottenham Hotspur in this window. Um, you reported as well that Jose Mourinho had made clear to Daniel Levy, um, where he wants to strengthen in the window. Um, would Eder Militao be part of that particular programme? Yeah, look, we've been talking for some time about the, the recommendations that Mourinho made to the club. Uh, he's talked himself about presenting a report to the club as to where he believes the team needs to be strengthened. Um, we said... Uh, I think before Christmas, that um, he believes they need a centre-back quicker, centre-back ideally left-footed, someone who can lead the defence, um, which would allow him to play with a higher line um, against certain opponents. He you know, has lost faith in Davinson Sanchez at a point during this season. Um, Eric Dyer and Toby Alderweireld has been a combination for a, a fair chunk of the season, Alderweireld's now been sidelined. And when he plays those two, they end up playing deeper because neither of them have great pace. Um, so he believes that they need that top quality centre-back to come in to take them to a different level. Also a box-to-box -box midfielder um, who can build the play uh, alongside Hoiberg in midfield um, and combine with Endombele. He doesn't, and, and he's 
vocal on this. He's saying, you know, it's one thing for me to write a report and it's another thing for me to ask or demand that Tottenham sign the player or expect in these financial uh, circumstances them to provide a player. Um, my understanding is that although Edder Militown is available, uh, again, a product of the COVID situation where Real Madrid would like to offload uh, a player on high salary who has barely been used this season. I think he has had one start in La Liga and one start in the Champions League for Madrid um, this season. While they'd be ready to offload him, um, they value the player at 50 million euros, um, are looking ideally to sell, but more realistically loan with an option to buy. Um, Mourinho, I understand, does not feel that Militown fits the profile of player that Tottenham need, i.e. he doesn't see him as the player who will come in and uh, overhaul the defence, um, be a leader in the defence and, and take uh, the team on to a different level. So then were that deal to be done by the club, I think it would be very much a compromise rather than uh, the ideal uh, scenario for Tottenham. Um, therefore, I think you can regard this as pretty unlikely to happen in this window. Well, lots of you have been asking us on our social media platforms, and you know we are the podcast to like and do engage with questions and also your views as well. Why there's been so little movement in this particular window? Now, as you will know from listening to various pods in the month of January, we've talked a lot about uh, football finances as well as uh, the uh, impact of the COVID pandemic regarding um, money not being spent in this particular window. But Duncan, what's is interesting now is that whereas before um, private equity firms and hedge funds were where they were prepared to lend clubs money and indeed finance loans that would effectively pay for transfer deals, um, those loans have been kind of changed and transferred to actually simply keeping clubs afloat. Uh, because of the lack of liquidity, mostly from the no match day revenue. And it is the case, isn't it, that um, those loans are now drying up even for um, borrowing money for clubs because football, at this moment in time, because of the uncertainty, is becoming a bad bet. Yeah, the, there was a huge amount of uh, capital uh, liquidity available in the market for transfer deals pre-COVID. If you wanted, as a Premier League club, for example, to sign a player uh, for 50 million euro transfer fee, which was to be paid in five instalments over the course of the contract, and you wanted to borrow that money from a financial institution, you could do it at relatively low interest rates. Um, and basically, only have to pay a small amount of cash up front to do the deal, essentially hand the, the financing of it over to a financial in institution at the cost of one or two percentage points of interest rate. There were a lot of companies competing to buy those 
transfer fees, um, which brought the interest rates down because they saw a football market where television rights, broadcast rights, the valuations of clubs had been on a an upward cycle in the top leagues and and you know Premier League in particular for a number of years. So it was considered a safe, easy money for the lending institutions. That is not happening anymore. They're looking at COVID. The, they're looking at the the massive hit that clubs are taking to um, the revenue because they don't have fans in the stadium, but also because broadcast rights um, have had to be uh, returned. Um, we're getting to a stage where broadcast rights are being renegotiated. You look, for example, in the Premier League of the Chinese deal being cancelled and the Premier League having to find a replacement for what was their their biggest overseas contract. You can look in a far worse situation in France where MediaPro have simply stopped paying the money they were due to pay um, to the French uh, league uh, in order to broadcast rights. And, and the financial institutions are saying, well, we can't be sure of the cash flows coming into these football clubs to repay the loans. We've already got a lot of transfer debt on our books. We don't want any more of it. What I'm being told is the only real interest from these financial institutions is in blue chip transfer. So, you know, something like a, a one of the elite Ajax players moving to a top European club, then they would be interested in putting cash forward for that. But that's, you know, a handful of deals. Give you an example of, of a club which the way they've had to borrow money has radically changed because of COVID and because of their financial uh, situation at present. That would be Southampton, who reported their 2019-20 financial results uh, in this past week. You know, regular listeners will remember us uh, talking about how Southampton were up for sale at a very high asking price and that how Southampton were struggling um, to get put the cash together to pay of uh, their creditors towards the end of last season and were looking to take on a substantial loan. In those accounts, you'll see that Southampton took on a huge loan from the American group MSD of £78.8 million. Pounds. Um, that loan is repayable in 2025 and the interest rate on it, according to Southampton's accounts, is 9.14%. This, this at a time when uh, you struggle to get you know 0.1% from a bank for your savings in the UK. Um, described by one um, specialist in this area as effectively vulture capitalism. You know, MSD are taking a, a, a big loan on Southampton and which gives them rights to the club, uh, the capital, the share capital of the club, I understand were they to fail to repay that loan. Um, the extent of it is remarkable. In, in those uh, 1920 accounts, uh, as well as reporting that their operating loss for that year went up from £60 million to £87 million, Southampton report that the revenue is down from £150 million to £127 million. So what they're doing there or what they've done there is taken on a loan from one institution, a, a huge interest rate that is worth more than half of the revenue in the 
their pre-COVID season. Um, and that is not untypical in football at present. MSD Southampton are not the only club they've loaned to. Um, Burnley's takeover involved uh, a loan from MSD. Derby County, I'm told, also have a loan from MSD. Um, and I think there you see the these financial institutions shifting from putting money into transfers to putting money into loans directly to the club, which leave them one with a much higher interest rate uh, that they'll earn on those loans if they're paid back than uh, they would on on those transfer uh, funding deals, but also uh, a, a degree of control over the club should those clubs fail to pay back the loans um, when they come to term. Duncan, one thing I'd be asking in in these terms, um, we know that UEFA and FIFA have guidelines on club ownership uh, because of conflict of interest with regards to um, any two opponents meeting who have the same owner. So if these loans are not repaid and the clubs go into the hands of MSD, how does that stand up with regards to ownership uh, and UEFA and FIFA rules? I don't think they would be able to own uh, multiple clubs in the same territory. Uh, where, for example, two of the clubs that they've given um, substantial loans to default and they took control over the, the share capital, I think that would be prevented by Premier League Championship rules. What they could be able to do is follow the Manchester City, Abu Dhabi City Football Group model and uh, own clubs in multiple territories. So if you loan, for example, to a Portuguese side and the Portuguese side is unable to repay a loan, then you could take control of that and have a, an English club and have a French club. You could, you know, in principle, and this is just hypothetical thinking here, you could build yourself a multi-territory network um, through uh, waiting for, for clubs to default on these loans because of a difficult economic situation. And you would be getting those clubs at a much cheaper price than if you'd bought them as uh, going concerns pre-COVID when clubs like Southampton were, their owners were asking for around £200 million of valuation to buy the club. I'm not sure that Lancashire and Hampshire um, could be described as territories out with <laughs> the, uh, the rules stipulating um, <laughs> no, non-opposition non and conflict of interest, given they both play in the Premier League. So Burnley and Southampton, would, uh, yeah. one of them would certainly have to be passed on to another owner. Exactly. Yeah. Um, very, very interesting. As are, Duncan, uh, new figures published by FIFA, this week regarding uh, transfer spending. We are chatting about uh, the fact that uh, there is not a lot of um, money being invested in transfers in this window for obvious reasons, as we know. Um, although still we have 12 days left. And um, as we also know historically, a lot of deals get done in the final two or three days of the January window. However, FIFA's figures are quite startling with regards to how things have changed in the last three to four years. 
Yeah, they are. Um, and, and I think you're right to highlight after this long conversation about not many deals happening, that if we are going to see something, it will probably be at the end of the window. Um, and it will be probably be desperate moves uh, clubs and clubs trying to exploit the teams who really need to dump a player off their wage book or need to try and get a little bit of financing at the end of the window. But this um, FIFA Global Transfer Market Report is is always an interesting one because FIFA have access to the exact um, sums agreed between clubs when they make international transfers. Um, and they, they put out this annual report detailing the, the total expenditure and highlighting some of the, the more expensive deals. And, um, there, you know, there, there are several clear indicators of how much the transfer market has gone into decline in that COVID, uh, summer window, um, that, that we went through. Uh, the number of, of total transfers, international transfers, went down by 5.4% um, compared to 2019, which is the first reduction in the total number of transfers since 2010. Um, loans, obviously the cheapest way to do a deal, is that we're at the highest level in nine years. Transfer fees as a total went down 23.4% in 2019. So you go from the record $7.35 billion of transfer fees in, in 2019 to $5.63 billion in 2019. And the levels actually dropped below, uh, but and substantially below the 2017 level. So we're going back basically four years in terms of uh, investment in transfer fees. Of um, those transfers that involved a fee and the majority of transfers did not, uh, 51% of them also included a, a sell-on fee, which was a, another high water mark. So you're, you're seeing clubs hoping that um, they, they can get money down the line selling players, adding in a sell-on fee and hoping that they'll get money once COVID passes. Um, and, and then they detail the 10 highest transfer fees um, paid during 2020, they don't give you the exact figures on the deals because they're not allowed to publish that. But fascinatingly, two of the 10 highest transfer fees uh, in the last year were in, uh, involved in the Artur Melo, uh, Miralem, Pjanic deal between Barcelona and Juventus. Now, why is that interesting? Well, Artur uh, costs 72 million guaranteed plus 10 million of bonuses. Pjanic, 60 million plus 5 million of bonuses. Between them, they've played, played just 22 league games for Barcelona and Juventus since they moved. And as we detailed in the podcast at the time, that deal was basically contrived for financial fair play purposes and, and accounting purposes. So Juventus desperately needed to get a large fee onto their books to make their books look tidier. Um, and they, uh, Pjanic was the player that they, they were able to sell and they took Artur from Barcelona essentially to allow Barcelona to fund that deal so that Barcelona could put money on their books. It's a, a product of the way transfer fees are accounted. You can go back to the podcast we did at the time. We explain it in detail. I won't do it again. But Juventus in their... Um, a statement about the transfer at the time 
said the economic effect is positive for about 41.8 million net of solidarity contribution and auxiliary expenses such as agents fees. Now remember that's Juventus officially saying that they took 41.8 million of profit onto their books um, for a deal in which they spent 72 million plus 10 and received 60 million plus 5 million. So it was a completely contrived transfer yet that's one of the, well, two of the 10 most expensive transfers in that COVID period. I think that's what's called creative accounting in uh, most businesses and certainly very creative on those two clubs' part. Perfectly legal, we have to say, and yes, creative. Well, I'm going to echo the um, opinions of many of our listeners, Duncan and uh, on so our social media accounts and the feedback we get on the podcast by saying Duncan Castles was right. Um, not a phrase you hear very often uh, on the podcast, but certainly on social media. And that is, of course, because the scales in his bottom, where he sat on the fence saying that Liverpool and Manchester United would draw last Sunday, uh, proved to be uh, absolutely correct. What did you make, Duncan? Um, not just of the game, because uh, obviously we're speaking now um, in terms of analysis. Um, what did it tell us with regards to both clubs' uh, challenge for the Premier League title? Well, I think you're being generous in saying I was right. I got I got the result right in saying predicting a draw, but I did say one-one, and in retrospect, that was a. a Pretty obvious error to make, given that it's, it's Liverpool. It's often said I'm a generous man. I'm a generous <laughs> man. Given that Liverpool hadn't scored for two games beforehand, and uh, and we saw the state of their attack in that match, and given that Manchester United um, under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer have now played um, a series of games against the big six and in inverted commas this season, in which uh, they have scored just one goal. Uh, in all those matches, they played Tottenham, Chelsea, Arsenal, Manchester City twice, and now Liverpool scored just one goal. That goal from a penalty spot, uh, again, not a surprise, and that goal in a 6-1 defeat. Um, they clearly have a problem against um, the stronger teams, and I guess that's something we did highlight in our preview of, of the game, was that the bigger sides have worked out the way Solskjaer likes to set up against them, which is deep defence, um, conservative midfield with, with Fred and McTominay um, playing in front of that deep line and, uh, and look to take goals on the counter-attack from pace. Um, yeah, Jurgen Klopp, I think, obviously there was a degree of frustration and bitterness as there often is when results go against them. But I think he, he summarised it um, pretty well in his description of the way Manchester United played. He said, the worst thing you can face in football is you play against a side with world-class players and they all defend with all they have deep in the box and are good in counter-attacking. So that's really difficult. That's a big challenge. And, you know, you, you saw, you can look at the statistics from that game, particularly the first half in which I think uh, Liverpool ended up with 66% of possession um, big territorial advantage and uh, just one shot at goal from Manchester United in the, the entirety of the first half. 
obviously, Solskjaer almost came away with the result. They had two strong chances at the end of the game, um, at the point in which Liverpool looked to have tired and also run out of ideas. And and I think, I think what we're seeing with Liverpool is they have run out of confidence in their attack. Um, so Solskjaer's plan almost worked, um, and you have to credit him for. I think picking the most rational way to play against a strong team in those circumstances. Um, He did play the percentages. Again, we said in our preview that he would be happy and he would likely set up in a way that they, to give themselves a chance for a draw and uh, and a chance to, to win it on the break. He got the draw, he stayed three points ahead of Liverpool. I think the problem is that Manchester City are now within range if they win their their game in hand to go top, um, albeit it will be briefly, given that uh, Manchester United play the same day, but they will be top in terms of um, points from 18 games. Um, And one way or another, he's going to have to find a solution to playing against these bigger teams, which allows them to score on a more regular basis. Solskjaer talked about it today, was asked about that poor record and, and put a slant on it that Tottenham are the only team around us who have beaten us. We didn't concede against Chelsea, City and Liverpool. And yeah, that's correct. But you did lose to Manchester City 2-0 in the League Cup um, and lost to Arsenal who aren't around you. But um, it's a you know, similar circumstance against the, the bigger six games. I don't think they can win even a league which in which the points totals are way below what they've been over the previous three seasons. Um, I think the total Manchester United have after 18 games would have ended up with them being sixth in the table um, and uh, fourth. I don't think they can win it with that style of play. Um, But then that's not a great surprise because we've been saying all season long that this team in the way they're playing, in the in the, the actual performances on the field, as opposed to the results they've gained, um, you know, six points gained from dubious penalties, for example, um, don't look like the best team in the division. Um, and and a lot of the, I think the the confidence about them is that they've gone on a very good run recently. Um, they've turned around a lot of games and the idea is that they will progress further from that. They're on a high, they're on a roll, that will continue. I think we'll get the test of that over the, the next weeks. They've still got to play the majority of the big six sides away from home. They play Liverpool again um, this Sunday in the FA Cup. And I think that that's going to be fascinating to see if Solskjaer changes his approach for the game because post-match, he talked about being disappointed and not taking the opportunity to take advantage of a of an opponent that was weakened. So he, he sets himself his team up in a way um, that is pretty defensive, is counter-attacking. Okay, might be the the logical way to play them, but he then admits that he really would like of his team to have taken more of the opportunity to inflict a defeat against Liverpool when they were weakened. Will he go for it on uh, on Sunday in the FA Cup? Let's see. From Liverpool's perspective, their their struggle to score goals is remarkable. Um, and I think anyone watching that game 
would see that a lot of their play up to the opposition box was pretty much as it has been um, during the period where they they won the title and won by such a significant margin. But none of their forwards seem to have a, a great deal of confidence in the penalty area at present, where you would see Liverpool taking shots um, pretty much as soon as they had the opportunity. It looks as though players, particularly Roberto Firmino, but also Mohamed Salah and Sadio Mane, it looks like they're overthinking things. And um, instead of responding to the situation, putting a shot in a goal, it's like, is there another pass? Is there a perfect opportunity we can create? And overplaying it and uh, and ending up without any opportunity. And I think it's clear that unless Liverpool sort that out, um, it's going to be very hard for them to retain their title this season. I do think Liverpool's um, lack of consistency in form, Duncan, has been one of the eye-opening um, features of this particular season so far. Uh, last season, they were like a winning machine. They simply, no matter what the circumstances, they would either batter opponents or they would score a goal in added time to yeah. get the points that they needed. Um, it was kind of, it felt like, you know, that it was that there was a momentum that was meant to be I, that they would win that first title in 30 years. And this season they've struggled to recreate that momentum. Uh, they have not had the same good fortune, uh, if you like, in some games that they experience, which all clubs need to win the Premier League title. They, But also, and more worrying for Jurgen Klopp, is that they've not produced the same level of performance in consistency terms, where... They kill games very quickly, um, whether it be in the first half or certainly by 70 minutes. Um, they have not performed to that level. And that obviously dents confidence in the players individually and as a team. Look, they've definitely suffered badly from injuries. They're playing two midfielders at centre-back. Um they could do something about that in this window, but appear to be rather indolent in terms of their um, intention to recruit at centre-half uh, to make sure that they can go forward without Van Dijk and uh, Joe Gomez. Uh, Matip is coming back and is training now, which obviously is an advantage. But at the same time, uh, this is not the same Liverpool that we saw last season and is unlikely to be the same Liverpool unless something dramatic happens to turn things around. Yeah, I think there are a lot of elements. You have to know, of course, how, as you said, a lot of things went for them last season. Um, they got a lot of refereeing decisions, VAR decisions in their favour. They got a lot of breaks from uh, opponent errors at key moments and, and they they built up a lead rapidly that led to Pep Guardiola, for example, effectively giving up on the title before Christmas. So they weren't really under a great deal of pressure for the second half of the season. Um, and you also know that they, they, they're not putting games to bed early very often this season and that adds to the physical demands on the team. Um, defensively, uh, Fabinho and Jordan Henderson as a centre-back combination has worked pretty well for them, but it takes away from their midfield. 
no doubt about that. Um, some interesting statistics on, on Virgil van Dijk and the, and the and his ability to create opportunities, um, particularly for Alexander Arnold, and and that um, his absence hurting their attack um, as much as it as it might hurt their defence. But you look at those um, forwards who have contributed so much to Liverpool's Champions League uh, title and their Premier League title. Uh, and look at what they provided since they actually won the title, and and the the rates are are not great. Uh, Firmino in particular is um, averaging a creation of a goal or what uh, Opta call a big chance um, once, just once in every two hundred and four minutes. Well, this season that's that's all he's managed. Um, and Firmino was never a great goal scorer, but he was a great creator of chances for Liverpool. Um, they, I think, very intelligently brought Diogo Jota in in the summer, but have then lost Jota to injury and uh, he's not expected to be back until next month. If you look at um, what those four attackers have provided in terms of goals or big chances in the 34 games since Liverpool officially won the league, you have Mohamed Salah, 32, Sadio Mane, 18, Firmino, 9, and Jota, 11. So Jota's already outdone Firmino um, over quite a long period since uh, since Liverpool won the title in just 17 games, and he's only started 10 of those. Um, Firmino's well off it. Salah, I think they have an additional issue because Salah is unhappy with his contract situation. Um, he's given two interviews recently, one uh, to the Spanish press where he talked about the possibility of moving to Spain, um, another one to Norwegian TV at the, the weekend. And in both of them, he's put forward the message that it's in the club's hands, i.e. in Liverpool's hands, to decide what happens to him, which I think is pretty transparent code for, uh, I expect to be rewarded with a new long-term contract um, for what I've achieved in the game over the last few years. Um, we know that there's an interest from Salah in moving to Spanish football. That's why he's giving an interview in Spain. But if you're Mo Salah and looking at the current situation, you're probably thinking that easy move to Spanish football that was in the uh, in the long-term planning isn't so easy anymore because Madrid and Barcelona both have big financial concerns. So maybe I'm going to have to stay at Liverpool. But whatever happens, I want to be well paid and what will probably be the last substantial contract of my career as he turns uh, 29 this year. Generally in situations like that, it becomes more problematic for a club when they're, they're one of their top players and he's the guy who creates more chances or scores more chances than the other ones, isn't fully focused on the game. Unlike the Beatles, Liverpool having a difficult second album syndrome. This is the first podcast on Transfer Window of the Week, which means, of course, hero and villain. Duncan, I would like to invite you to please give us your hero of the last few days in football. I was going to go uh, for Tongi Ndombele for 
what is an absolutely sublime finish um, in which he probably earned Tottenham the, the three points against Sheffield United when they looked like they might be going to let another um, uh, position which they've gone ahead in a Premier League game slip. But uh, he has been pipped for this one by a Dundee United centre forward and Scotland centre forward, Lawrence Shankland. Um, who scored a goal last week against St. Johnson um, on a night when Dundee United paid tribute to Jim McLean, as we did on the Transfer Window podcast a couple of episodes ago, that um, if it doesn't get goal of the season in Scotland, there's going to be one fantastic goal scored to take it off him. Um, he hits the ball from what ought to have measured as, I think, 53 yards. He's about seven or eight yards inside Dundee United's half at, at an angle. Um, and as uh, as the Dundee United manager, Mickey Mellon, put it, he struck it so cleanly, it's like a golfer striking a drive. It was that kind of noise. But if you haven't seen that, listeners, I urge you to get on YouTube and have a look at that goal um, because it is one you do not see very often at any level of football anywhere. And as we've said before in the Transfer Window podcast, there are as yet undiscovered tribes in the Amazon basin who knew Duncan was going to say that. Uh, my hero, uh, sorry, my villain for this week is, I'm going to utter a sentence, Duncan, I never thought I would. Uh, that's how historic uh, this villain is. And that's because my villain of this week is one Lionel Messi who got sent off for the first time in his career in club football in his 753rd match for Barcelona in the Spanish Super Cup against Athletic Bilbao. Um, I have to say, it was not quite the assault that some people described it as. It was more kind of forearm in the face rather than a punch uh, on the Bilbao player. Um, however, it was definitely a red card and... I think probably sums up Messi's state of mind at this moment in time with his frustration um, at his situation and also Barcelona's situation as the transition from a president who clearly um, had no vision and messed a lot of things up uh, with regards to the future of the club. And now they have the situation of an election which is having to be delayed because of COVID as well. And Messi himself is unsure about whether or not he will stay beyond the end of his contract in June or whether he will leave to join Manchester City in that time. So, Leo Messi, you're the villain of the week. What happened? What happened, Leo? <laughs> Just didn't think it ever would. Before we go today, I'd like to give a shout out to um, Sport 5, Israeli television, who um, are carrying a uh, section uh, on uh, their programme with regards to the Transfer Window podcast analysis of Avram Grant and his links to Chelsea. So if you're listening in Israel and you're a new listener or even an existing one, uh, thanks for being with us. And we very much appreciate your presence and keep with us and you'll get even more entertainment and analysis and news with the Transfer Window podcast. That's it for today. So please, if you can, uh, leave a five-star review on iTunes. If you're listening uh, on YouTube, then turn on your, your 
uh, notifications and you'll be first to hear of the next podcast published. Also, of course, uh, reach us on our social media platforms. We are at Transfer Podcast on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and individually at Garbo SJ and Duncan is at Duncan Castles. That's it for today. Stay safe, be well and thanks for listening. <laughs>